Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, it's so good to have you here. I invite you to take a Bible, uh, whether one that you've brought or one that's in the pew in front of you, and turn to the book of Numbers. Again, we are looking at different stories or encounters with God um, that people have, and today's story is a very interesting story. Numbers chapter 22 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, I want you to think, um, have you ever been on the the brink of doing something or experiencing something or, or stepping into something, and yet you wonder whether or not it will actually take place? I remember my wife and I flying one time. I don't remember exactly where we were at, but I remember us flying and we got on the plane and we sat down and we got our thing situated. They closed the hatch. We were ready to take off. And then we waited and we waited and we waited. Some of you have maybe felt that before. And then you wait some more and you wonder, are we actually going to take off? And next thing you know, the, um, the flight attendant and the captain come on the, the, the speaker thing and they say, we are about to deplane right now because we have some issues. And so we get off all the plane, we all get off the plane, and only to get on another plane a few moments later, hoping to take off. The story that we find ourselves in today is a story that finds the people of Israel on the cusp of something really, really important. In the book of Numbers, it tells the the wilderness wanderings. Actually, the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers uh, is the word Bamidbar, and it means wilderness. And so Numbers tells about all these wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. And when you come to the end, or towards the end of the book of Numbers, um, what you find is the people of Israel are gathered on the plains of Moab, and they're ready to go into the next stage of what God wants for them. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. But as they do that, we're introduced to a character whose name is Balaam. We're introduced to another character whose name is Balak, and we're ironically introduced to a donkey that talks. So, with all that said, let's read this very, very interesting story together. Uh, We're not going to read all of the story, but we're going to read Numbers 22 together. So, if you're able to stand with us, uh, please rise for the reading of God's Word. If it is more comfortable for you to sit, that is absolutely fine as well. Numbers chapter 22, which comes from this book early on in the scriptures, says this. The Israelites, they traveled on, and they camped in the plains of Moab, near the Jordan, across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. 
Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at the time, he sent messengers to Balaam, or Balaam, son of Beor, at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. Balak said to him, look, a people has come out of Egypt. They covered the surface of the land and are living right across from me. Please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balak, or they came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. He said to them, spend the night here and I will give you the answer the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. Then God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. You are not to curse this people for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, go back to your land because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The officials of Moab rose, returned to Balak and reported Balaam refused to come with us. Balak sent officials again who were more numerous and higher in rank than the others. They came to Balaam and said to him, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says, let nothing keep you from coming to me for I will greatly honor you and do whatever you ask me. So please come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam responded to the servants of Balak, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Please stay here overnight as the others did so that I may find out what else the Lord has to tell me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but you must only do what I tell you. When he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the officials of Moab. But God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord stood his, took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his, servants, his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into a field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with the stone wall on either side. Donkey saw that the angel of the Lord saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in the narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam. So he became furious and he beat the donkey with a stick. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she asked Balaam, what have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey. <laughs> I love that. Balaam answered the donkey. You made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, am I not the donkey you've ridden, ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? No, he replied. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam knelt and bowed with his face to the ground. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? 
Look, I came to oppose you because you are doing what is evil in my sight. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now, if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you are to say only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite city on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak asked Balaam, did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Balaam said to him, look, I have come to you, but what can I say? But but can I say anything I want? I must speak only the message God puts in my mouth. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kiriath Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and sent for Balaam and the officials who were with him. In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. For there he, from there, he saw the outskirts of the people's camp. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, from such an interesting story that you would teach us about your faithfulness, about what is true, what is right, and how we can walk and live for you in the world and context in which you have placed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So right, kind of a crazy story. How many of you have ever heard that story before? Okay, so a lot of you are familiar with a talking donkey. And as we read this, you go, oh my word, what is going on in this passage? As I dug into it this past couple weeks, I thought, oh my word, what is going on in this passage? Like, why is it that Balaam says, I don't know, I'll ask the Lord. And God says no, and then he comes back, and, and then he says yes. And like, what's going on with this donkey that sees the angel of the Lord, crouches down, moves aside, saves his master's life. What is going on with this story? If you were to summarize this story in one word about what it's talking about, here's a good contender. One of the key words that is repeated over and over and over again, in fact, 17 times in the narrative, the word blessing happens. Blessing. Ironically, the word cursing also happens. And there's actually only five places in the Bible where blessing and cursing are found in this manner. And so there's something going on here that ties back to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, So here we have this idea of blessing that goes all the way back to Genesis. This idea of blessing is one of the purposes for which God created humanity. It says in Genesis 1.28, this is before the fall, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And the kind of blessing he's talking about here is, is God is saying, I want to give you my strength. I want to give you my provision, Adam and Eve, to be my, to, to be my bearers of the divine image in the world in which you've been placed. And so not that they become gods, but they become servants of God and they act on behalf of God in the world that God has made. After the fall, this image is deeply marred, and sin enters the world, and God, though, 
has incredible love for his people, and he longs to bring blessing, and so he covenants with a people. And here's where Israel is at as they sit in this moment in Numbers. These are the plains of Moab from the west, and so we're looking towards the east, so we're in modern-day Israel right here. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Jordan River that flows from north to south. Over here are the plains of Moab, and this whole region up here are the mountains of Moab. So you find Balaam and Balak, they're somewhere, I think, up in these mountains. They move a couple different times to offer sacrifices because Balak wants Balaam to curse this people. But they're down in here. So this is kind of the vantage point at which they're at. But here's what God had said to Abraham, and he gave this also to Jacob. And so when we find this words blessing and cursing, it's found in Genesis 12, 3. It's found in um, when Jacob is blessed by his father uh, in the story of Jacob getting ready to go up to the area where he was fleeing from his brother uh, that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And here's what he says in Genesis 12, 3. He says, God says, I will bless those who bless you, he says to Abraham. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through through you. So as they begin to look at what is going on here, um, we find that God is a God who desires to bless. And he desires to bless the world, but he chooses after the fall to bless a world through a people. And more than just a story of how God is going to bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, what this story is summarizing, and you could put it this way, is that in the story of Balaam, God uses a prophet to remind Israel that as they stand on the cusp of the next stage of God's story, God will be faithful to keep his promises of blessing them and the world through them, even to the point of bringing the blessing of the Messiah, which is what will happen in our story. So here we have the story of Balaam and the donkey. This word bless occurs 14 times. I misspoke earlier. The word curse happens 17 times. And God is, um, God is saying to Balaam, as Balaam is asking, can I go and do this deed for this guy named Balak? God says no. And the reason he says no is because God has already covenanted to bless his people. He's, he's already said, these people are blessed. Now, that doesn't mean that everything they do is right. That doesn't mean that everything they do is godly. In fact, if you read all of Numbers, you would find out many times that the things that the people of Israel do are against God. But God has chosen and he has covenanted to work through a people to bring blessing to the world. And he will be faithful to that promise. So a couple things about this guy by the name of Balaam. All right, so Balak calls this guy Balaam, and in Numbers 22, we find out a couple of key things. The first thing we find out is that he's well-known. He is from an area, um, and there's kind of a couple of different ways that scholars look at it. Most scholars look at Balaam having come from this area up near what is called Carchemish in the northern part of the Syrian uh, border, up near this great Euphrates River. Most scholars think that's where he came from. If that's the case, just look at where they're at. Um, the Dead Sea is right down in here near Jerusalem. They're sending men 400 miles to go up and to say to this guy, 
guy who is apparently well-known as a diviner and as a soothsayer, um, and who, when he blesses someone, they're blessed, and when he curses someone, they're cursed. They're sending people 400 miles to go and say, will you come down and deal with this problem for me? Um, the problem is described in this way, in verse 3 of chapter 22. Moab was terrified of all the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. The language there actually mirrors what Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 1. These people are too great, and so there's, there's a fear of these people. And so Pharaoh then moves to enslave them. Moab wants to move to do something about this, to conquer them, because the king of Moab wants to be in control, right? So he sends, because if you don't think your army can do it, maybe you'll go get a spiritist, and you'll um, get someone who's in conversation in some way with the dark forces of the earth, kind of like how, you know, when the king um, Saul gets towards the end of his life, he goes to see a witch at Endor about the future. It's kind of a similar thing that's going on here. They're sending off for a person who is a diviner. They're sending off for a pagan, probably from the north, uh, the other place he could be from is more down in this, um, like Damascus and a little bit south of their area. And there's actually archaeological evidence of a guy by the name of Balaam of Beor, or Balaam of Peor from this area. So some scholars say he's from this area. Most scholars say he's from that area. I'll let you study that and come to your conclusion uh, at some point. But Balak sends for him, and he says, please come put a curse on this people. These are our powerful people, and I know, this is verse 6, I know that those you bless are blessed, and that those you curse are cursed. And when you, when you hear a language like that, you should be thinking Genesis chapter 12, right? Um, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so he's going to a guy who's known to be someone with a little bit of weight that when he says these people are blessed, somehow those people are blessed. And when he says these people are cursed, somehow these people are cursed. But what he maybe knows, maybe does not know, is that the people whom he is trying to curse are people God has said, I will not curse them. In fact, I will bless them, and I will bless the entire world through them. In the context of this, I want you to feel for a moment just kind of how Israel felt as they're on the cusp of this stage right here, as, as they're getting ready to, to make this journey from this side of the river over to this side of the river and up into Jericho. Here's what's happened. Aaron, who is the high priest, has recently died. Moaz, Mo, Moaz, Moses is about to die. The people that Moses has been leading in the wilderness for the last almost 40 years are people who look very familiar to him. They're, they're the sons and the daughters of a generation who said, no, we won't trust God and we won't go into that, that next stage of promised land conquering. The, so here's a new generation standing on the cusp of coming into the land Losing a significant leader, about ready to lose another significant leader. And you can imagine that they, they probably felt like, all right, God, what are you doing? Like there's a sense of anticipation and excitement because they can see it. Like they, they can see the land. They've been here before. God, what will happen? Aaron dies. Moses is told he can't go into the promised land because of a disobedient thing that he did. And 
as they stand on this, they might be going, God, will you be faithful here? Will we go into the next stage of what you have for us? God, will you keep your promise that you gave to Abraham of a land and of a nation and of a blessing? And as they get ready to go into this next promised land, um, they are walking into an area right here. Here's a different map. So here's the, the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. This is looking north. Israel is right here on the plains of Moab. The mountains of Moab are on the right side of your screen. They're getting ready to go into what is Jericho over here. They're getting ready to go into this next stage of what God had promised them to inherit and to inhabit. And as they're doing that, this guy by the name of Balaam enters into the scene. The first time that he is asked, he goes to the Lord and he says, should I go with these people? And God says pretty clearly to him, uh, which verse is in it? Well, God says to him in verse 9, who are these men with you? Balaam replied, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message. These people have come out, put a curse against, them, maybe, curse against them. Maybe I'll be able to fight against them and drive them away. Notice how clear God is here. God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. All right, is there any ambiguity in that response? Good, none. Yeah, absolutely none. Yeah, and just to make very certainly clear, he says then, you are not to curse these people for they are blessed. So Balaam has his answer. Pretty clear, all right? Balaam has his answer. The people go back, they tell the king, hey, he's not coming. The king says, take more stuff, and he actually sends people with a little bit more cred. Send those people. Maybe we can get him to come down and to do this thing that we've asked him to do. And when he comes down the second time, we learn a little bit more about Balaam. Because Balaam has the truth of God already given to him. God, should I go down and should I do what the king of Moab wants me to do? No, you are not to go with them. These people are blessed. They're not cursed. But when he is encountered with them again, he says, wait here another night. Let me go consult the Lord. <laughs> like, does he need to consult the Lord again? No, he knows exactly what God thinks about this. But he goes back to them and he responds to the servants uh, of Balaam after, you know, having, having another, another uh, no there. Uh, he says uh, to the servants of Balak, if Balak, this is verse 18, were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Please stay here overnight as the others did so that I might find out what else the Lord has to tell with me or it has to tell me. Verse 20, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but you must only do what I tell you. So on the one hand, I think you could pretty easily argue when the people come back the second time, Balaam should have said, guys, we've already had this conversation. Yahweh has already said, no, the answer is no. But Balaam goes back to God and you're like, well, God, why are you saying now he can go? And part of it is found, I think, in what we find out in the scriptures about the character of this guy named Balaam. Balaam is a pagan prophet. He's a guy who's a diviner. Some, uh, some translations call him a soothsayer. He's mentioned three times 
in the New Testament. The first place is in 2 Peter chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but you can look that up for later reference. The next place is in Jude 11, and the last place is in Revelation 2. There's a couple more references in the Bible. These are really key because in 2 Peter chapter 2, we find that Balaam is a false teacher. He, he's a person, or, or that false teachers were likened to Balaam. He, he was a person who was okay to lead the people astray. And he was okay to lead the people astray because he was out for personal profit. He was out for material gain. He's been given a whole lot of promise of wealth if he is able to do this. And as these people come back again, I think he's looking at it going, wow, I could really make a lot of money if I went down there. God, can I go down there? Now, God says, you can only say what I tell you to say. And so I think part of what he's wanting to do is he's, he's wanting to somehow amidst the clear revelation of what God had said, and that was no, he's trying to kind of weasel his way into maybe trying to do something that might get him up the next ladder of success. The British minister F.W. Robertson says this about Balaam. He says that Balaam went to God to get his duty altered, not to learn what his duty was. He knew what his duty was. No, do not go with them. These people are blessed. They are not cursed. But he goes back to God a second time to try to get his duty altered. As he goes back, God doesn't so much relent but God is going to allow him to experience the ramifications of his decision to go against God's clear revelation. In Jude 11, by the way, um, it also talks about false teachers. They were a problem then, they are a problem now. False teachers are people who try to change the truth of the gospel. They cloak messages of self-help, prosperity, and rebellion in religion, trying to make it palatable to others. False teachers in that context um, would teach, that, teach the people that God's grace would give people a license to sin. Um, I like what one writer says. This is Pastor Warren Wearsby. He says, Balaam's error was not only thinking that he could disobey God and get away with it, but also in thinking that those he enticed to sin would get away with it as well. The false teachers in the days of Peter and Jude preyed upon ignorant people and tried to lead them into sin all the while um, covering and cloaking it with a veneer of religion. In Revelation chapter 2, and we studied this um, when, in our series in Letters to the Churches last year, um, simply put, um, John describes Balaam as a, as a person who places a stumbling block before God's people. Specifically, he places a stumbling block of, of sexual immorality and idolatry. We'll look at that a little bit as we go on. But you can look at those later. Um, false teaching is basically this, and this is kind of what Balaam is up to. Any teaching that makes it easy and permissible to sin is false doctrine, or in false doctrine, because the word of God was given to us to enable us to live holy lives. So God's people, Israel, they're on the cusp of getting ready to go into the promised land. And this is now looking from the mountains of Moab across, you can see the Dead Sea on the upper left-hand side of your, of your, um, of your screen. Um, the, this is actually climbing up Mount Nebo. And so we're looking over where they're at. And as um, Balaam comes, gets ready to come back 
to this land. He, he gets ready to come down because God says, okay, go ahead and go. He's going to be coming to a place like this. But as he comes to a place like this, he's met by the angel of God. And the angel of God is not exactly pleased with him. In fact, a couple of times he says, I'm coming out to oppose you because what you are doing is evil in my sight. But to help him get that message, to help him see that, God reveals himself to a donkey. All right? So Balaam is riding his donkey, the donkey he's ridden his entire life. He's coming down whatever pass or, or whatever um, area of the land that, that he's walking through. And as he comes the first time, um, his donkey stops. How's it go? She pressed herself against the wall. No, no, sorry. She goes off a path into the field is what happens in verse 23. Balaam hits her to return to the path. The second time, um, she presses against the wall and she squeezes Balaam's foot. So he hits her again. And then the third time, she just crouches down because she sees again this angel of the Lord and she knows, I can't go that way. And Balaam is like, what are you doing? And he's taking out his physical aggression on his donkey. And then in a great, you know, uh, turn of events, in verse 28, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, right? So, so the donkey is talking not necessarily because donkeys talk, but he's talking or she's talking um, because God says, I can even use an animal who is dumb to proclaim my word. The God who made the world and everything in it can use the dumbest of things to speak truth. Why would that matter? In, verse, in chapters 23 and 24, as Balaam gets ready to go down and to speak only what God allows him to speak, he comes as a pagan prophet. He, he comes as someone who is an, an unlikely carrier of prophecy much like a donkey who is an unlikely carrier of truth to a guy by the name of Balaam. So you have this kind of crazy story that happens here. Um, Balaam uh, hears the word of the Lord coming through the donkey's mouth, and Balaam actually engages this donkey in a conversation and then finally realizes that it's not the donkey that's opposing him, it's actually God. At the end of all this, he recognizes in chapter, chapter 23 verse, sorry, chapter 22 verse 34 that he has sinned and he says, and now if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. So, so Balaam has had a certain amount of reckoning at this point, uh, but the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, go with the men, but you are to say only what I tell you. Now there's a problem with that because he's been asked to do a very specific thing, curse the people in the land. Right? He's been asked to look over the people, and they're going to come three times where, where there's going to be offerings made. Actually, yeah, three times, then a fourth bonus time. Um, Balak is going to say to him three times, like, we're going to go ahead and uh, give up these offerings. In fact, the first oracle happens in chapter 23, um, verses 7 through 10. There's seven altars with rams. And Balaam says, uh, I, I'm going to go see what Yahweh has to say about this because he's gathered there with Balak and he's, and he's being asked to curse. And, and he knows he can't curse, but he's like, all right, Lord, what are you going to have me say? As he comes back, the amazing thing, and we didn't read these um, together, but later today, go read chapters 23 and 24 in its entirety because it's, it's a fascinating read. He, he 
he proclaims this poem in verses 7 through 10. And basically what he says here is that God has not and will not curse Israel. So you can imagine, Balak has said, hey, would you curse these people for me? He says, all right, I'll see what I can do. God says, you're not going to do that. And so what does Balaam do? He says what God tells him to say. God uses him to be a mouthpiece, a pagan prophet, a diviner, to be a mouthpiece for his people, for, for God's people in the midst of them getting ready to enter the promised land. And he says, God has not cursed his people. God, God will not curse his people. Uh, and Balak is incensed by it. You can see it in chapter 23, verse 11. What have you done to me? Balak asked Balaam. I brought you to curse my enemies, but look, you have only blessed them. Balaam responds in verse 12. Shouldn't I say exactly what the Lord puts in my mouth? Balak you know, the king of Midian, he's like, all right, let's go try this a different way. So they go to a different vantage point, and it's round two. Uh, he, he brings him over. They sacrifice more sacrifices, and the Lord meets with Balaam to tell him what to say. And it's interesting because wh what he says then is basically summarized. Verses 18 through 24 are summarized this way. You could summarize it this way. is that, that the Lord their God is with Israel and that God will keep his promises to them. In fact, I love how verse 23 says it. There's no magic curse against Jacob and no divination against Israel. It will now be said about Jacob and Israel what great things God has done. So imagine your Balak going, that's not exactly the curse I was going for. What are you doing? But Balak, because he's coming back for a third time around, the story likes three. It's like th three times um, Balaam um, has to learn the lesson from the donkey. Three times Balak has to kind of learn the lesson from the Lord through Balaam. And the third time comes around. And, and this is an oracle. It's interesting, in, in chapter 24 um, here, uh, well, yeah, just before chapter 24, in the last two verses of, of chapter 23, he says, Balaam told Balak, build me seven altars here, prepare seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And then verse 1 of chapter 24 says, since Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go seek omens on, as on previous occasions, but he turned toward the wilderness, right? His, his normal MO is to go seek an omen, to go seek a dark spirit force of the world, right? There is in this story, there is an adversary who is against the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is one who wants to not only take out the blessing, he wants to make sure that that blessing never comes to fruition, and here you have the people of Israel standing on the cusp of this. And they're down there, and this is happening up somewhere above them, I believe. And Balaam sees that it didn't please, that it pleased God to, that, that it pleased God to bless Israel. And so in verse 2, it says, When Balaam looked up and he saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, notice what happens here. The Spirit of God came upon him, right? And he proclaimed a poem or a prophecy. And, and this is a prophecy, and we kind of get that from verse 3, where it says, the oracle, or the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. And he goes through these uh, verses, and you might just think, okay, he's just going to bless Israel again. 
But as you read through these next several verses, you find out that this oracle is very different than the past two. The past two were like, no, I will be faithful to my people Israel. This one gets a little bit interesting. You know, he goes, um, the oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are open, verse four, the oracle of the one who hears the sayings of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwellings, Israel. They stretch out like river valleys, like gardens beside a stream, like the aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedars beside the water. Water will flow from his buckets and by his seed will be abundant water. Then it says, his king will be greater than Agag. Or your translation might say, some manuscripts read, his king will be greater than Gog. And his kingdom will be exalted. God brought him out of Egypt. He is like the horns of a wild ox for them. He will feed on enemy nations. He will gnaw their bones. He will strike them with his arrows. He crouches and lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. As he's giving this oracle, a couple of things are going on. One of the things that is going on is that um, He's not just proclaiming Israel's victory over um, Moab. He's proclaiming um, Israel's victory over Gog, the ancient enemy of Israel. And it's more of a title than a specific person. And not only that, in verse 9, he's restating God's blessing to Abraham and his descendants that we found, that we find in Genesis 49 and in Genesis 12. But there's an, another interesting thing that's going on here. I'm going to try and summarize it for you. And if you'd like to deep, delve a little bit deeper, there's a fantastic um, article about this in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy that I'd be happy to you know, let, let you add it. Um, the verses here, writer puts it this way. In, in the verses, starting in verse, around verse 8 and 9, um, th- there's, there's a repeat of what is said in the last oracle, but there's a noted exception between the second one and the third one. Quote, there's a shift in pronouns from the third person plural to the third person singular. In other words, it says, God brings them out of Egypt in 23, verse 22. But in 24, it says, God brings him out in chapter 24, verse 8. Why would there be a shifting of a, of a plural to a singular? And the reason is, is because he's not just telling the story of Israel here. He's telling the story of a future king. He's telling the story of one who is going to come, one who is prophesied to come all the way back to the pages of Genesis, and how God will bring him out of Egypt, and how he is like the horns of a wild ox, and how he is the one who crouches and who lies down like a lion, and and how God is going to bring blessing, not just through a people, but through a very specific person. And this is a messianic foreshadowing of what Jesus would become. The, the future king has already been foretold. If you go to Genesis 17, 6, or Genesis 35, 11, or Genesis 49, 10, we find messianic prophecies. And here we find from the lips of a pagan prophet who the spirit of the Lord comes upon for a short time, by the way, not only will I bless the people who I've been 
who I have covenanted to bless. I will not curse them, but I will work through a person who will become a king, who will become a redeemer, who will become a ruler. And just to drive the point home a little bit more, it's funny because in verse 10, Balak becomes furious with Balaam. He strikes his hands together and he says to them, I summoned you to put a curse, but instead you have blessed them three times. He says, now go to your home. I said I would reward you richly, but the Lord has denied you a reward. Balaam says, didn't I previously tell that I have to say what God tells me to say? I will do whatever the Lord says. Verse 14, now I'm going back to my people, but first let me warn you what these people will do to your people in the future. And the way you could actually translate that phrase in the future is in the end of days. So prophetically, sometimes when, when we're looking at prophecy, you, you look at a speck out there and you don't know the exact terrain that's going to be walked throughout the course of the rest of the life. So like when, when God gives promises of a Messiah to, his, to, to the patriarchs, they see dimly what we see with greater clarity because of the passage of time. Here, he's going to be promising something really cool that has to do with the end of days. He proclaimed this poem, the oracle, this prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are opened, the oracle of the one who hears the sayings of God and has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will, be, will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab. He will strike down all the Shethites. Eden will become a possession. Seir will become a possession of its enemies, but Israel will be triumphant. One who comes from Jacob will rule. He will destroy the city's survivors. Like, like what, if, you, if you write in your Bible, two words to just kind of underline are star and scepter. When you see phrases like star, star has to do with a royal figure. And we might look at it and go like, well, could that apply maybe to David, you know, king of Israel, or to Saul, or, or, or to Solomon, kings of Israel. But it seems to be much bigger in scope here. This is a royal figure that's talked about not only in this passage, but in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, and Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, it's tied to the Messiah. There's a star and a scepter. And when we think of scepter, we think power and authority. And think of the power that's going on on the plains of Moab, right? The king, uh, the, the king of Moab is absolutely deathly afraid of what these people are going to do. And Balaam, through the work of the Lord, gives him this extra bonus prophecy that basically says, yeah, and it's even going to be more than just today. Not only am I not going to curse my people, I'm going to bless them. And we find that he blesses them as they walk into the land. What he's going to find, what they're going to find over the passage of time is that there's going to be an even greater blessing that comes through a person. The Messiah Jesus, the one who is a star, the one who is a scepter, the one who has power and authority will come from Jacob and he will smash Moab. He will reign. He will be king of kings. This is more than just a blessing that it's going on here. And the story of Balaam and Balak, it, it, it's God using a pagan prophet to reveal his mighty promises of a future redeemer. 
Uh, imagine you're Balaam and you're asked, hey, come curse these people. And you're like, okay, I'd like to sign up for that journey. But he goes through this, talking donkey and everything, and you actually end up becoming a voice piece for the Lord as a pagan prophet. And you go like, how do we know that that prophecy is true? And this is, I think, one of the reasons why there's a talking donkey in this story. Because if God can open the mouth of a donkey and speak his truth through him, or her, it's a her, I think, in the text, speak his truth through the donkey, he can most certainly use a pagan prophet to speak truth. Which does not mean that everything Balaam says is true. But when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he says, here's what the Lord says, And we look back and we see, God, this is how you've actually fulfilled this. And it's consistent with your word and it's consistent with what you've said. We go, wow, God uses a pagan prophet to tell and to to, um, foreshadow how he would bring blessing through the people of Israel. But the blessing is not just for Israel. The blessing is for the entire world. The blessing is for the entire world. And it's the blessing of of life. It's the blessing of forgiveness. It's the blessing of redemption. In fact, I love the way that Seth Postel puts it. He says, Balaam's story traces God's divine plan to bless the Gentiles through the people of Israel, the pinnacle of Jacob's prediction of the king who would come in the last days. So he uses a talking donkey and he uses a guy by the name of Balaam to say, there's a king who's going to come in the last of days. It's a king who's going to rule and reign. No one will ever conquer this king. And you can bank on it. You can trust him. In fact, you can give your life to him knowing that just as God has promised to bless the people of Israel, And as he has sought to keep that promise and to preserve them as a people, and I believe will continue to preserve them as a people until one day in Romans 9, 10, 11, it says all Israel will be saved. The God who is faithful to the people Israel is the God who will be faithful to you today. How do you begin to apply a story about a donkey with a prophecy in it, right? A couple of things. What I want to remind you of is this. Firstly, God uses the Jewish people to be a conduit of blessing. God wants to bless the world through them, and he does bless the world through them, through the Messiah Jesus. But guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of that blessing, and you are called to be a part of that blessing as well. In Acts chapter 1, it says, uh, let me read it to you. I just want to get it fully in its context. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, verse 7, Jesus says to his disciples, It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the of the earth. Now he's talking to a bunch of Jewish disciples there, but if you're a follower of Jesus here today, guess what? You are called to be a witness to your Jerusalem, to your Judea, to your Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Because the blessing that God sends through his people that is made manifest in the Messiah Jesus dying and rising again to make 
redemption possible. To, to, to take what was broken and what was lost, this relationship with God, and to bring it back to restoration, that's the same thing that he wants to do in your life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's what he has done in your life if you're a follower of Jesus, but it's what he wants to do in the lives of the people around you. The way that God's people be a blessing to others is you give the greatest blessing. We give the greatest blessing that we can. Jesus, life, not just for today, life forever. God uses a people to do that. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of that people. But God equips you to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. The second thing I want to, to make comment on with regard to application is this. There is a spiritual battle going on in our world. There is. It's been going on for a long time. Before you were here and after you are gone, should the Lord not return, there is a spiritual battle going on. But I'm encouraged by what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, where he, com- he, he exhorts believers in the middle of spiritual battle to stand, to stand, to not give in to the temptations of the enemy. Why can they stand? In fact, he, he says to them, take up the full armor of God, because it's not in your strength that you're going to stand. It's going to be in the strength that the one the one who gave himself for you that you can stand. You're struggling with something today? There's a spiritual battle going on. There's physical battles that go on too, but there are spiritual battles going on that affect how we think, that affect our mood, that affect how we even perceive truth. How do we stand? We go back to the word of God. We go back to the sufficiency of God, the spirit of God, and the truth of God, and we stand in his power. The offensive weapon given in Ephesians is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You want to battle against the temptations and the the lures of this world? Go back to what is true. Stand in the truth. Because when you stand in the truth, and Jesus, by the way, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you're not just standing in a book, you're standing in a person. When you go and you stand in a person, you can stand. You can stand because God, God is more than able to conquer the, the enemies of Moab for Israel, and he's more than able to conquer the enemies spiritually you have today. Pray at all times in the spirit. Be very mindful of the spiritual battle that's going on. Be aware of it, but don't be preoccupied. Rather, be preoccupied with God. Know this, God's purposes will come to pass. The third thing I want to say is God is sovereign. You can trust him. In fact, the continued existence of Israel as a people is not because of their perfection, but it's a testimony of God's continued faithfulness. Right? Last thing I'd like to say before we close is when your adversaries fail at spiritual attacks, they will result to attacks that tempt your flesh. What do I mean by that? Right? God did not allow Israel to be cursed. We know from a little bit later in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, um, that Balaam after this whole thing goes down, God uses him to bless. Balaam was instrumental 
and telling Balak exactly how to try to tear down the people of Israel. And we see this in chapter 25. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, just a couple verses. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate, and they bowed down and worshiped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israel. What I want you to see, we could say a whole lot more about that, but right on the heels of Israel being, I don't know if I have another, no, I don't. Imagine we're back, we're looking over this land, the, 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 the plains of Moab, like, wow, I couldn't get this guy, Balaam, to curse these people. Balaam comes along and says, I know exactly how you seek to tear them down. You tear them down by tempting them to seek to meet their own needs in a way that is absolutely not compatible with what God has said. And so what did they do? They send women down to tempt Israel to become a part of their people through seduction. And many Israelites do that. And the next chapter, chapter 25, is a hard chapter to read because God brings some judgment upon his people because he has to stop blatant, unrepentant sin. But in the middle of that, I want to say, when your adversaries fail at spiritual attacks, they will seek to appeal to your flesh, which means, what do we do with our flesh? Our our, our flesh is something that we will battle with until the Lord returns. We can't crucify our flesh, but as Paul says in Romans chapter 13, we can deny it. Deny the flesh Give no opportunity for the adversary there. There may be things that you and I are tempted in. We need to deny them. And we don't deny them by saying, I will not, I will not. We deny them by saying, God, you have said to love you in this way. God, you have said that your grace is sufficient for me in my weakness. God, you have said that your power is made perfect when I don't feel like I have strength. We deny flesh, not by becoming consumed with all the things out here, but by coming back to the God who has saved us, who will, who will one day make us complete in him. We come to him and we say, God, I'm insufficient for this. And he says, absolutely, my child, I know you are. That's why I am here and I am with you. If you're struggling with sin today, don't try in your own strength to fight it. Go to God and say, God, I can't do this because you're gonna need his strength to fight the greatest flesh temptations that the world will throw at you and at me. But God's strength is sufficient for you, Christian. His power is made perfect in weakness. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. And that's the hope I want to leave you with today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for how a seemingly bizarre story looks forward ahead centuries to tell about how you would send your son 
to be a star and to be a scepter, to be a king and a ruler, to be one who would come not only, not, not, not just to rule over the earth, which he will one day do in, in, in fullness and in person, and in, but God, you sent your son, your only son, to conquer sin and death and the grave, to deal with the real problem we had going back to Genesis, which was our own waywardness, our own sin, and our own desire to pursue our own needs apart from you. And God, I, I ask this morning that you would reveal to each one of us the ways in which we might be seeking the things of this world and not seeking you. And God, I pray that you would give us a desire to seek your kingdom first here in this world, a world that vies for our attentions through a whole host of good and bad things. God, give us a a passion to know and to follow hard after you. Remind us, God, that we are loved, we are secure. If we are in Christ, we are made new. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remind us of of the lengths to which you have gone to make redemption possible. God, remind us. Teach us anew what it means to have a heart that's set to love you and to love one another. That we might be bearers of blessing to our world for the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus the Messiah. In whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.